0: chapter 8 of no clue this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by roger moline no clue by james hay chapter 8 the man who ran away ancestors of the old family from whom arthur sloane had purchased this colonial mansion 8 years ago still looked out of their gilded frames on the parlor walls their high-bred calm undisturbed their aristocratic eyes unwidened by the chatter and clatter of the strangers within their gates. Hastings noticed that even the mob and mouthing of a coroner's inquest failed to destroy the ancient atmosphere and charm of the great room. He smiled. The pictured grandeur of a bygone age, the brocaded mahogany chairs, the tall French mirrors, All these made an incongruous setting for the harsh machinery of crime inquiry. The detective had completed his second and more detailed search of the guest rooms in time to hear the words and study the face of the last witness on Dr. Garnett's list. That was Eugene Russell. One of life's persimmons, long before frost, Hastings thought, making swift appraisal. A boneless spine. Chin like a sheep, brave as a lamb. Russell could not conceal his agitation. In fact, he referred to it. Fear, he explained in a low, husky voice to the coroner and the jury, was not a part of his emotions. His only feeling was sorrow, varied now and then by the embarrassment he felt as a result of the purely personal and very intimate facts which he had to reveal. His one desire was to be frank, he declared, his pale blue eyes roving from place to place, his nervous fingers incessantly playing with his thin, uncertain lips. This mania for truthfulness, he asserted, was natural, in that it offered him the one sure path to freedom and the establishment of his innocence of all connection with the murder of the woman he had loved. He was, he testified, 31 years old, a clerk in a real estate dealer's office, and a native of Washington. Mildred Brace had been employed for a few weeks by the same firm for which he worked, and it was there that he had met her. Although she had refused to marry him on the ground that his salary was inadequate for the needs of two people, she had encouraged his attentions. Sometimes they had quarreled. "'Speak up, Mr. Russell. Dr. Garnet directed, and take your time. Let the jury hear every word you utter. After that, the witness abandoned his attempt to exclude the family portraits from his confidence, but his voice shook. Conductor Barton is right, he said, responding to the coroner's interrogation. I did come out on his car, the car that gets to the Sloanhurst stop at 10.30, and I did leave the car at the Ridgecrest stop. "'a quarter of a mile from here. "'I was following Mil... Miss Brace. "'I saw her leave her apartment house, the Wallman. "'I followed her to the transfer station at the bridge, "'and I saw her take the car there. "'I followed on the next car. "'I knew where she was going, "'knew she was going to Sloanehurst. "'How did you know that, Mr. Russell?' "'I mean, I was certain of it. She had told me Mr. Byrne Webster, the lawyer she had been working for, was out here spending the weekend, and I knew she was coming out to meet him. Why did she do that? Mr. Russell displayed pathetic embarrassment and confusion before he answered that. He plucked at his lower lip with spasmodic fingers. His eyes were downcast he attempted a self-deprecatory smile which ended in an unpleasant grimace. She wouldn't say, but it was because she was in love with him. "'And you were jealous of Mr. Webster?' "'Well, yes, sir. That's about it, I guess.' "'Did Miss Brace tell you she was coming to Sloanehurst? "'No, sir. I suspected it.' "'And watched her movements?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And followed her?' "'Yes.' "'Why did you think she was in love with Mr. Webster, Mr. Russell? "'And please, give us a direct answer. "'You can understand the importance of what you're about to say.' "'I do. "'I thought so because she had told me that he was in love with her, "'and because of her grief and anger when he dismissed her from his office.' And she did everything to make me think so, except declaring it outright. She did that because she knew I hated to think she was in love with him. All right, Mr. Russell. Now tell us what happened during your, uh, shadowing Miss Brace the night she was killed. I got off the car at Ridgecrest and walked toward Sloanehurst. It was raining then, pretty hard. I thought she had made an appointment to meet Mr. Webster somewhere in the grounds here. It was a quarter to eleven when I got to the little side gate that opens on the lawn out there on the north side of the house. How did you know that? I looked at my watch then. It's got a luminous dial. You were then at the gate near where she was found dead? Yes, and she was at the gate. Oh, so you saw her? I saw her. When I lifted the latch of the gate, she came toward me. There was a heavy drizzle then. I thought she had been leaning on the fence a few feet away. She whispered, sharp and quick, Who's that? I knew who she was right off. I said, Jean. She caught hold of my arm and shook it. She told me, still whispering, if I didn't get away from there, if I didn't go back to town, she'd raise an alarm, accuse me of trying to kill her, or she'd kill me. She pressed something against my cheek. It felt like a knife, although I couldn't see, for the darkness. The witness paused and licked his dry lips. He was breathing fast and his restless eyes had a hunted look. The people in the room leaned farther toward him, some believing, some doubting him. Hastings thought, he's scared stiff, but telling the truth so far. All right, what next? asked Dr. Garnet, involuntarily lowering his voice to Russell's tone. I accused her of having an appointment to meet Webster there. I got mad. I hate to have to tell all this, gentlemen, but I want to tell the truth. I told her she was a fool to run after a man who'd thrown her over. "'It's none of your lookout what I do,' she told me. You get away from here, now, this minute. You'll be sorry if you don't.' There was something about her that frightened me, mad as I was. I'd never seen her like that before. "'What do you mean?' "'Garnet urged him. "'I thought she would kill me, or somebody else would, and she knew it. "'I got the idea that she was like a crazy woman, "'out of her head about Webster, ready to do anything desperate, anything wild. "'I can't explain it any better than that.' "'And did you leave her?' "'Yes, sir.' "'At once?' "'Practically. "'A sort of panic got hold of me.' I can't explain it, really." Russell, seeking an illuminative phrase, gave vent to a long-drawn, anxious sigh. He appeared to feel no shame for his flight. His fear was that he would not be believed. Just as she told me a second time to leave her, I thought I heard somebody coming toward us, a slushy, dull sound, like heavy footsteps on the wet grass. Mildred's manner, her voice, had already scared me. When I heard those footsteps I turned and ran. My heart was in my mouth. I ran out to the road and back toward Washington. I ran as fast as I could. Twice I fell on my hands and knees. I can't tell you exactly how it was, why it was. I just knew something terrible would happen if I stayed there. I never had a feeling like that before. I was more afraid of her than I was of the man coming toward us." Members of the jury pushed back their chairs, were audible with subdued exclamations and long breaths, relieved of the nervous tension to which Russell's story of the encounter at the gate had lifted them. They were, however, prejudiced against him, a fact which he grasped. One of them asked him, Can you tell us why you followed her out there?" "'Why?' Russell echoed, like a man seeking time for deliberation. "'Yes. What did you think you'd do after you'd overtaken her?' "'Persuade her to go back home with me. I wanted to save her from doing anything foolish, anything like that, you know.' "'But from what you've told us here this morning, it seems you never had much influence on her behavior.' "'Isn't that true?' "'I suppose it is. "'But,' Russell added eagerly, "'I can prove I had no idea of hurting her, "'if that's what you're hinting at. "'I can prove I never struck her. "'At twenty minutes past eleven last night "'I was four miles from here. "'Mr. Otis, a Washington commission merchant, "'picked me up in his automobile six miles outside of Washington "'and took me into town.' I couldn't have made that four miles on foot, no matter how I ran, in approximately fifteen or twenty minutes. It's been proved that she was struck down after eleven anyway. You said the condition of the body showed that, doctor. You see, I would have had to make the four miles in less than twenty minutes. An impossibility. You see?" His eagerness to win their confidence put a disagreeable note, almost a whimper into his voice. It grated on Dr. Garnet. It affected Hastings more definitely. Now, he decided, he's lying, about something. But what? He noted a change in Russell's face, a suggestion of craftiness, the merest shadow of slyness over his general attitude of anxiety. And yet this part of his story seemed straight enough. Dr. Garnet's next question brought out the fact that it would be corroborated. This Mr. Otis, Mr. Russell, where is he? Right there, by the window, the witness answered, with a smug smile which gave him a still more unprepossessing look. Jury and spectators turned toward the man at the window. They saw a clean-shaven, alert-looking person of middle age who nodded slightly in Russell's direction, as if endorsing his testimony. There seemed no possible grounds for doubting whatever Otis might say. Hastings at once accepted him as genuine, an opinion which, it was obvious, was shared by the rest of the assemblage. Russell sensed the change of sentiment toward himself. Until now it had been a certainty that he would be held for the murder. But his producing an outsider, incontestably a trustworthy man, to establish the truth of his statement that he had been four miles away from the scene of the crime, a quarter of an hour after it had been committed, that was something in his favor which could not be gainsaid. Granting even that he had had an automobile at his disposal, a supposition for which there was no foundation, his alibi would still have been good in view of the rain and the fact that one of the four miles in question was Dirt Road. With the realization of this, the jury swung back to the animus it had felt against Webster, the incredulity with which it had received his statement that there had been between him and the dead woman no closer relationship than that of employer and employee. Webster, seated near the wall furthest from the jury, felt the inquiry of many eyes upon him, but he was unmoved, kept his gaze on Russell. Dr. Garnett, announcing that he would ask Mr. Otis to testify a little later, handed Russell the weapon with which Mildred Brace had been murdered. "'Have you ever seen that dagger before?' he asked. Russell said he had not. Reminded that Sheriff Crown had testified to searching the witness's room, and had discovered that a nail file was missing from his dressing case, a file which, judging by other articles in the case, must have been the same size as the one used in making the amateur dagger, Russell declared that his file had been lost for three years. He had left it in a hotel room on the only trip he had ever taken to New York. He gave way to Mr. Otis, who described himself as a commission merchant of Washington. Returning from a tour to Lynchburg, Virginia, he said, he had been hailed last night by a man in the road and had agreed to take him into town, a ride of six miles. Reaching Washington shortly before midnight, he had dropped his passenger at 11th and F Streets. "'Who was this passenger?' inquired Garnet. "'He told me,' said Otis, "'his name was Eugene Russell. "'I gave him my name. "'That explains how he was able to find me this morning. "'When he told me how he was situated, "'I agreed to come over here and give you gentlemen the facts.' "'Notice anything peculiar about Mr. Russell last night?' "'No, I think not.' "'Was he agitated? Disturbed?' He was out of breath, and he commented on that himself, said he'd been walking fast. Oh, yes, he was bareheaded, and he explained that, said the rain had ruined a cheap straw hat he had been wearing, the glue had run out of the straw and down his neck, he had thrown the hat away. And the time? When did you pick him up? It was twenty minutes past eleven o'clock. When I stopped, I glanced at my machine clock. I carry a clock just above my speedometer. Mr. Otis was positive in his statements. He realized, he said, that his words might relieve one man of suspicion and bring it upon another. Unless he had been absolutely certain of his facts, he would not have stated them. He was sure, beyond the possibility of doubt, that he had made no mistake when he looked at his automobile clock. It was running when he stopped and when he reached Washington. Yes, it was an accurate timepiece. Russell's alibi was established. His defense appealed to the jurymen as unassailable. When, after a conference of less than half an hour, they brought in a verdict that Mildred Brace had been murdered by a thrust of the nail-file dagger in the hands of a person unknown, Nobody in the room was surprised. And nobody was blind to the fact that the freeing of Eugene Russell seriously questioned the innocence of Berne Webster. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Milleen